Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, journalist Natalie Wexler argues that the U.S. education system can be improved by expanding history, science, and the arts curriculum of elementary school students. She's interviewed by Kaya Henderson, former chancellor of the District of Columbia Public Schools. Hi, I'm Kaya Henderson, and I'm so excited to be here today with Natalie Wexler to discuss her brand new book, The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. <laughs> well, uh, tell me, let's start by talking about why you wrote this book. What was your inspiration for writing? Well, I had been, um, I live in D.C., as you know, and I'd been writing about uh, education reform efforts here, of which there were many, and I was um, also somewhat involved in the education reform movement. I was on the board of a charter school, and I, I became fascinated um, by what was going on, partly because I think education is so important. I think it is our best hope for addressing inequity in society and breaking the cycle of multi-generational poverty. And also it was intellectually interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a, a mystery that I wanted to solve, essentially, um, which was what happened when kids got to high school. Everything seemed to fall apart. Scores seemed to be improving at the elementary level and to some extent at the middle school level. And, and I would go into classrooms and the kids all looked eager and engaged. But when you went into high school classrooms, it was a different picture in most and the scores were not improving, and nobody seemed to understand why, although there has been a lot of attention over the years on this high school problem. Um, So what I stumbled upon, really, I can't say I solved this mystery myself, but I, I stumbled upon the fact that the real problems, the problems that become so apparent in high school, have their roots in the way we teach kids in elementary school. Um, And so once I realized that, and I realized that despite all of the research I had done, all the panel discussions I'd attended, I'd never heard this mentioned as a problem, that somebody had to try to get that issue into the public conversation about education, because it really, it's at the root of a lot of the problems we're talking about, and we're not going to be able to fix them unless we address that problem. Mm -hmm. And can you describe for people who are not usually in classrooms, What does a content-rich curriculum look like? Well, first of all, it it focuses on content rather than comprehension, reading comprehension skills, which really is an almost universal approach in this country to elementary education. We spent a lot of time on reading, especially since the introduction of high-stakes reading and math tests about 20 years ago now. Um, And the reading that kids are doing is not designed to build their their knowledge about anything in particular. The idea is to get them to master skills like finding the main idea or making an inference. And the theory is that you will be able to apply that to any text that's put in front of you. Um, The problem is that as cognitive scientists, scientists who study learning, the learning process, have known for decades The most important factor in whether you can understand what you're reading is not generally applicable skills like finding the main idea. It's how much background knowledge you have of the topic. So really, if we want to boost kids' reading comprehension, we should be doing the opposite of what we've been doing. We should be increasing the amount of time they're spending on social studies and science and things that expand their knowledge of the world rather than 
shunting those off to the side, or in some cases eliminating them from the curriculum, and spending hours every day on these illusory skills. So there are many way, different ways of building kids' knowledge, and there are different kinds of curricula you know, that can do that. But the, the thing we, they all have in common is they focus on topics rather than on skills, and they have teachers reading aloud to children while those children are still learning to read um, because kids can take in so much more information through listening than through their own reading, really through middle school on average. And the concepts that, um, the, and, and the vocabulary and the syntax in written language are more complex than in spoken language. And they need to be exposed to that so that when they are able to read independently, they'll understand what they're reading. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit more about how a teacher's job looks different when they are teaching a content-rich curriculum versus when they are teaching skills. Well, um, it, it, it could look more challenging to teachers because, you know, with teaching skills, the theory is all you really need to do is like a mini lesson, 10 or 15 minutes modeling the skill. So you read a book that you choose not for its content, not for what it's about, but for how well it might lend itself to demonstrating or modeling the skill of, say, comparing and contrasting or determining the author's purpose or whatever. And then you just have to read that book and and say, hmm, this phrase is coming up a lot, so I think maybe that's the main idea. Or I'm thinking that this character is planning to do X. I'm making an inference. And then you just provide the kids with books at their, that are determined to be at their own individual reading level, and they theoretically go off and practice that skill. So it it's, doesn't require a lot of uh, content knowledge on the teacher's part or, um, or really a lot of uh, effort involved in well, sometimes hard work of building kids' knowledge. But in a content-focused classroom that is using a content-focused knowledge-building curriculum the teacher's going to focus on whatever topic the curriculum covers. And I I have to say, you know, in this country, a lot of elementary teachers are expected to basically design their own curriculum. Mm -hmm. And that is a tremendous burden to to place on teachers who are already, you know, they are juggling so many things. Their attention should be focused on how best to deliver the content of a curriculum, not to come up with that content from scratch. That's, That's, they're not trained to do that. So, in a content-focused classroom, ideally, the teacher would be provided with a, a curriculum organized by topics, so there are books or, or readings. Maybe you'd spend a couple of weeks or more on a topic, and there are a series of books or readings organized around that topic that you read aloud to kids, or they read sometimes on their own, depending on their abil- reading ability. Um, and I think from having been in both kinds of classrooms, that both teachers and students find the experience of a content-focused classroom much more engaging and much more satisfying. I mean, it gives kids a chance to really explore um, the things that they are interested in, right? This is when you discover that you are that your kid is really into birds or dinosaurs or whatever. And and they discover things that they didn't know they were interested in. I mean, I think there is a prevailing ethos that we should let kids choose what they want to study. You know, it's, it's kind of uh, inculcated in 
teacher training that it's good to give kids a lot of choice and let them pursue their own interests. And yes, there's a place for that. But especially for kids who are coming into school without a lot of knowledge of the world, mm -hmm. they don't know yet what they're interested in. There are a lot of topics they can get interested in. And I've seen, you know, kids get fascinated by Greek mythology who, believe me, they weren't picking this up at home. They sure. knew nothing about Greek mythology. And it's not necessarily something they encounter in their daily lives. But yeah. But they love it because it's stories and they're really interested. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I mean, I completely buy the argument that kids should be exposed to content-rich curriculum. Um, that was my experience as a student in public schools where in the fourth grade I fell in love with Greek mythology. Mm. And Tish true, we were not talking about that at the dinner table <laughs> in my home. Um, but I'm curious about how you would grapple with the question of um, who determines what content should be taught? Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of challenges around understanding who decides what kids should learn. Uh, and so want to pick your brain a little bit on that. Who gets to decide the curriculum? Yeah, yeah and that is a question that has comes up a lot. Um, and it's a, it's a very good question, but... Um, I would say several things. One is um, we already make those decisions when it comes to the high school curriculum. I mean, you know, kids are somehow we manage to decide what kids should learn. And the problem is if we wait until high school to implement those decisions, many kids don't have the background knowledge when they get to high school to understand what we want them to learn there. So I don't if we can make those decisions for high school kids, why can't we make them for elementary school kids? and then ensure that they actually are able to learn what we want them to learn in high school. Um, I also think, you know, it, it, there, there are, as I said, there are different ways to build knowledge, and there are different sets of knowledge that different groups might want kids to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's, I, I don't think we have to make value judgments about one set of, of knowledge being better than another. But I do think we need to look at what do we want kids to know so that they can understand a newspaper or, you know, understand the news and make informed decisions as voters and citizens? And so there may be cultural references and historical information that we really need them to know about American history and, and other countries. Without that knowledge, they're going to be at a serious disadvantage in high school, college, and beyond. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is that I think um, parents have some ideas about what they want their children to be taught, um, especially when it comes to, um, at least for young people of color, um, representation and seeing themselves in history. A lot of times some of the content-rich curricula that we see um, doesn't include marginalized groups, their history, their story. It's kind of a Western civilization piece. Um, and so I wonder, is there a role for parents and, and for folks who are worried about their kids seeing themselves in the curriculum? What, what role do they have to play in this? Well, I think that parents do have a role to play, and I, but I also think that parents want their children to be successful in society. And so um, I think that if they understand that there are, there's a certain body of knowledge that kids are going to need to acquire in order to understand 
the newspaper, the world around them, they will want probably both, as this is not original to me, but there's a phrase, a mirror and a window. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the good news here is if we... Say for for our audience that doesn't understand. So a curriculum that gives you both information that reflects your own life, your ethnicity, your heritage, a, a mirror, and a window to, and this is true for every, all groups of students, That's a right. window into others' cultures and other, uh, the wider world that may, where people may not look exactly like you, but hey, you ought to know what, yeah. what's going on with them. Um, and I think that the, the good news about what I'm talking about is if, if we don't spend the time, the precious time we're currently spending on these largely illusory comprehension skills, we have a lot of time left in the school day to provide both that mirror and that window. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, and we can, um, but I am convinced that it takes a larger group of people deciding what kids are learning than has previously been the case. I mean, it was it was fascinating to work with a parent cabinet when I was the chancellor of D.C. Public Schools, and they had very clear ideas about what they wanted their young people to learn. They wanted both windows and mirrors, um, and I think far too often we discount um, the the abilities that parents have to partner with us on this work. And so my hope is that as districts think about moving in this direction as schools and school leaders think about this, that they actually see parents as real partners. Yes, and I, I think um, there's huge unexploited potential um, for parents to have more influence over what goes on in schools. And, and I'm talking even just urging schools or encouraging schools and teachers to move away from this skills-focused approach to some kind of knowledge-building approach. And then we can talk about which knowledge-building approach, but I think many parents, and myself included when my children were younger, they just trust schools and they trust teachers mm -hmm. to know what, you know, what to do to prepare kids academically. And so I, you know, I, I didn't look too closely at what my own children were learning when they were in elementary school. They seemed yeah. happy and yeah. seemed to be thriving. And when I look back now, I, I mean, they did have great elementary school experiences, but I realized that um, one thing they weren't getting in the early elementary years was history, and that was because of a widespread view that history is a developmentally inappropriate topic for mm. young children, which there's just no evidence for that. Kids love history. Um, it's It can be presented very engagingly as a series of stories, and kids love that. But even though I, I also have a background as a historian, and my kids got plenty of exposure to history at home, I didn't, you know, I didn't even question that they weren't getting it at school. It, I didn't even really notice it. So I think a lot of parents are in that position where they don't really know what's going on in the classroom. And I think if more parents and the general public really understood what's going on in the vast majority of our elementary school classrooms and how little that corresponds to what scientists have figured out about how kids actually learn, that they would be up in arms. Mm -hmm. Um, we talk. You talk a lot about reading and writing, um, and argue that a content-rich curriculum would make a significant difference in both subjects. Um, our national math scores are not so much better, uh, and so I wonder if you would diagnose the challenge with math differently 
and propose different solutions? Well, I'm not an expert on what's going on in math. Um, I, um, I feel like I, I feel that it's quite different from literacy, but I would say a couple of things. Um, I have been told that the math tests don't always correspond to what is being taught at particular grade levels. Mm -hmm. That may be one problem. But another problem that I've seen for myself and that teachers have told me about is that literacy itself can interfere with kids' abilities to understand math word problems on tests. Mm -hmm. That kids will do much better when a a math problem is read aloud to them Mm -hmm. than when they have to read it themselves. And as you may recall from the book, I I showed up, so I followed two classrooms, well, it turned out to be three, (laughs) through the school year. One doing this skills-focused approach to literacy and the other doing the knowledge-building approach. And both of these classrooms were serving kids from low-income communities. All the students were of color. And one day I showed up at the skills-focused classroom hoping to observe a literacy lesson, a reading lesson, and I got there and the kids were doing math. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, well, I drove here. I spent an hour (laughs) driving here. I'll stick around and see what I can learn. And I'm really glad I did because... I, as I wandered the room where kids were independently trying to work on math problems, I found that their literacy issues there, and not just reading, but um, just vocabulary issues, were interfering with their ability to do these math problems. So one child was didn't understand the word combine, and he was just staring at a problem that said combine eight and three, mm-hmm. and it it was he was hearing it, so it wasn't that he couldn't read the word, but he did not understand that word, and another child was having real trouble with a number line, just what number comes before 84. It was a series of numbers from 80 to 90, and he kept clicking on 85, 86, 87. And I eventually realized the problem was he didn't understand the word before. Mm -hmm. So these literacy problems affect things beyond just literacy, strictly speaking. Yep. And how did we get here? I mean... Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question. And that is one reason... I wrote the book was I do have a background as a historian mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to figure out where this all came from and frankly as somebody outside the education world this way of teaching is not intuitive it's it, it doesn't you know kind of make sense on a sort of common sense level that you read a book and then you don't talk about what the book's about you talk about what the author's purpose was or like what how to do sequence of events in informational text or whatever um, and you know, I kind of had to piece this together, but um, I would say the deep roots go back maybe 100 years mm-hmm. to the, the beginnings of what's known as the progressive education movement, now called more constructivist education. But essentially, and, and one of the central tenets of that movement is it is better for children to discover or construct their own knowledge for themselves than to have things told to them or explained to them by a teacher. Um, And there's some truth to that. I mean, we definitely have to be participants in constructing our own knowledge. But there's a difference between that and saying that children should discover their own facts for themselves, facts about history, about science, especially if they're coming in to school without a lot of knowledge of the world. Expect them to discover things for themselves is a tremendously inefficient process. But it, the way it, it feeds into this skills-focused approach to literacy instruction is that I think teachers feel it's, they're, giving, they're providing children with the tools, the skills that will enable them down the road to acquire and construct their own knowledge. They're not 
dumping information on them in a way that mm -hmm. is not really going to be absorbed. Um, and I think so. I think that mindset sort of, you know, laid a fertile ground for this skills-focused approach to comprehension to take hold. But there have been a number of more recent developments that really intensified that, beginning with the, the advent of high-stakes testing. Mm -hmm. So those tests, you know, which have become the yardstick by which we measure progress, you look at them and they seem to be measuring reading comprehension skills. They're asking kids, so read this passage, find the main idea, make inferences. And so teachers naturally, and administrators, they think, well, the, that's what's being tested are those skills, so we need to just double down on drilling kids on those skills. Overlooking the fact that one reason kids often score low on those tests is they don't have the background knowledge to understand the reading passages in the first place. It's not that they can't make an inference they make inferences in their lives all the time, you know. Yep. Even t toddlers will, can make an inference. Sure. So that's not the problem so much as they lack the background knowledge and vocabulary to understand the passage. And, and that has been a big problem that's been overlooked. When you spend a lot of time talking about teachers, um, but not not on colleges of education and how teachers are trained. In fact, you just said teachers feel like they have to teach the tools that, right? But there's, in fact, a set of people who are making decisions about what teachers are learning. Absolutely. And, and they were conspicuously absent from your book, and so I want to mm -hmm. understand what role you think colleges of education and teacher training programs play. Well, I, I mean, I do think I, I address that to some extent, um, and I think it's hugely important. Um, I don't know that it's going to change that quickly, but basically, yes, teacher training is at the root of a lot of these problems, and I don't want to, I'm not casting blame on anyone. I think it's, it's um, partly the result of a divergence that goes back a long way uh, between schools of education on the one hand and the rest of academia on the other. And so uh, you get schools of education teaching uh, concepts in developmental psychology that across campus in the Department of Psychology, psychologists know are kind of outdated. And, you know, there's, there's, they've been superseded by a lot of other things, but they may be taught as gospel in schools of education. So it's partly a lack of communication, I think, and partly um, a different um, mindset, a different ethos about research um, and what research means and, and a suspicion maybe of some of the... Um, scientific methods that, say, co cognitive psychologists might use, and a preference for um, trusting your own observations in the classroom. And so they, they may be somewhat dismissive of some of, the, and there's been a lot of research in the last 30 years about, specifically about the reading process and, and the importance of background knowledge, but also about a lot of other things that could really help teachers teach more efficiently and students learn more efficiently um, but schools of education, fac faculties in schools of education are either unaware of those developments or maybe somewhat wary of them because they think of them as, uh, they think of those scientists as being in an ivory tower, not really understanding what goes on in a classroom. Yeah. And I do think you need both. You need the perspective of the practitioner, what really goes on in a classroom, but you also need this really potentially very helpful evidence from cognitive psychology about how children learn. 
But that lack of communication, in fact, has shifted the entire burden then on the employer, right? The employer then has to, we call it professional development, right? right? Induction and professional development. We have to teach people, I say we as a (laughs) former school district leader, we have to teach people what they are not being taught in schools of education. And so I guess one question is, how do we get the psychologists and the educators talking so that the universities and the training programs can take some of the burden off of districts, which already have 900 things to do? Right. Well, I mean, I I will um, address that. But I I, want to just say that it's not impossible for teachers to learn on the job. I think, you know, professional development has not been very effective, but it's been so it's really suffered to a large extent from the same problem that elementary education has suffered from, which is that we've tried to teach these sort of disconnected skills, disconnected from content. So, mm-hmm. like, how do you develop critical thinking when it really should be, okay, you're teaching, say, Greek mythology or the Civil War, whatever. How do you get kids to think critically about Greek mythology, about the Civil War? That's going to be much more helpful. And teachers, another problem is teachers often, because of the way schools of education curricula are oriented, they themselves lack background knowledge about history, about science, particularly if they have gotten an undergraduate degree in education. And and so they really haven't gotten those basic courses that make sure that they they know their facts about history or whatever. Um, But a good curriculum... In a good, with a good curriculum, a teacher can learn a lot along with his or her students. And I have talked to teachers who said, I've learned so much history from core knowledge, language arts, or whatever the curriculum is. But you're right. Ideally, teachers would be getting trained before they enter the classroom. In both, They would be getting the content knowledge they need, and they would be trained in pedagogical techniques that will help them deliver that really effectively. Um, there, I think there's some hopeful signs on the horizon. Uh, there's a group called Deans for Impact, for mm-hmm. example, that is a group of uh, leaders of, at schools and teacher training programs. And one of their objectives is, shouldn't be such a revolutionary idea, but to bring teacher training programs into line with the findings of cognitive science. I mean, it is, it is difficult when teachers aren't taught content to then expect them to be able to teach content well. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that our teachers who have a subject area expertise, right, are, are usually more effective than people who don't because you've got deep content knowledge in some area or another, right? Yeah. And you don't see that manifest until high school because that's when you are actually taking content-specific courses But, I mean, this led to, for us, it was about departmentalization or having content courses in elementary school. And people told us that we were crazy for giving kids, you know, for not having one teacher responsible for everything, Mm -hmm. but for having one teacher who was math and science and the other who was social studies and, and, and English or in cases where we could separating out those four subject yeah, areas. Yeah. I mean, yes, certainly. I don't think you were crazy. Um, I, I think it, it does make sense. and I, But it's kind of a chicken and egg problem because if we have elementary school curricula, as we do in most places, that don't expect teachers to teach much content, particularly below fourth grade, then, uh, you, you know, then why bother providing teachers with that content knowledge if they're not going to be expected to teach it? Um, 
but I think we should be expecting them to teach it. And I think the other, um, the advantage of departmentalization is when you have, even when you have one teacher who is responsible for both English and social studies, because of the pressure that teachers feel to raise reading scores, and because they feel the way to do that is to really double down on those comprehension skills, often they either give short shrift to the social studies they're supposed to be teaching, or even if they cover it, they put skill. They still put skills in the foreground. They'll. They won't really focus on the con- in the social studies content either. So, Natalie, what is it going to take? What is it going to take for us to move from the way we're currently teaching to uh, this new, not new actually, to a more content-rich, um, knowledge-based way of teaching as the norm? Well, I think it's going to take a multi-pronged effort. So not just from the top down and not just from the grassroots up, but a sort of pincer movement (laughs) at both ends. Because um, classroom teachers are not in a position to um, adopt curriculum for an entire school or an entire district. They can only do so much. Um, But if it's just imposed from above without teachers really understanding why, um, what what is the point, um, it's probably not going to get implemented in the classroom because there's a long history of teachers closing the classroom door and doing whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So, um, But it does have to start with the adoption of a content-rich elementary curriculum that is focused on building knowledge. And I think that, uh, as I said, teachers need to understand the whys and wherefores of that. They also need to um, get professional development uh, embedded in the content of that curriculum, maybe coaching. It's it take, it's, it's an adjustment to move from that skills-focused way of teaching to, um, to this content-focused way of teaching. And there are numerous obstacles, uh, intellectual obstacles, emotional obstacles, and ha- habitual obstacles, obstacles of habit. Teaching, even if you really want to switch to a different way of teaching, um, teaching is, as I'm sure you know, a very complex activity. <laughs> teachers, I, I am in awe of teachers. They are juggling a zillion things. I mean, I've seen, you know, a teacher conducting a lesson while discovering that one little girl has lice and has having to deal with that problem or a tooth falls out or whatever. And in that situation, it's very easy to revert to what's familiar to your habits. So I think administrators need to be supportive and they need to understand this will take time. And they also need to give teachers opportunities to collaborate, to compare their experiences. And I'll say one more thing, um, which is we haven't really talked about this, but we talked about it a little, but testing. I think um, it is very hard for teachers to get this message that they need to focus on content when they feel their performance and their school's performance and their students' performance is going to be evaluated on the basis of tests that test skills. Um, even and I and I I've talked to teachers here in DC who I know the administrators feel that they've given them the message that the way to raise test scores is actually to build knowledge, not to focus on skills. But those teachers have not been able to hear that. Um, they are still looking at what that the skills are what's going to enable their kids to do well on those tests. Yeah. So I mean, this I, I agree that it's a multi-prong approach. Um, that there are so many different things that contribute to why this doesn't happen from teacher buy-in to effective professional development to the which curriculum folks have to whatever else. Um, 
and and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about teacher buy-in, but I mean, you sort of say if we just go to a content-rich curriculum, like this is the answer, right? Like this is actually the thing that's going to move us, and you aren't really challenging. I mean, when when we tried to when we, when we moved to a content-rich curriculum at DC Public Schools, we had to change everything. We had to change everything from how the day was structured to how teachers were being professionally developed to who was professionally developing teachers to how we figured out how to deepen teachers' content knowledge at the same time that we were helping them to teach skills because you need to do both to, you know, pushing back against a union who said teachers should be able to decide what they wanted to do to, you know, a state education system or a federal education system that sometimes saw what we were trying to do, sometimes didn't. And so there are all of these, as you rightly say and lay out in your book, including like teachers just needed to understand. I'll never forget having a conversation with my teacher's cabinet where they were like, listen, you've done X and you've done Y and you've done Z and you keep doing all these random things. And I said, they're not actually random. You said you needed to first understand what teaching expectations were. And so we laid those out for you and told you where you were against them. And you said, okay, now that you know how we want you to teach, you wanted to talk about the what because it wasn't consistent and it wasn't equitable and it wasn't rigorous and it wasn't engaging. And so we worked with you to develop curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we blew, blew. And literally I just told the story and they were like, oh, yeah, like that all makes sense. And so I think the communication around this is also huge. So, but, but you largely talk about like, I mean, you don't talk about moving any other sort of structures in the education galaxy. Tell me. Well, I mean, you know, I was, I I wasn't allowed to write a 600 page book. (laughs) I had to cut 30,000 words from my original manuscript. So there's a lot that I don't go into. And this is really for the general reader. So, you know, I'm in, and I know this is more complicated than just adopting a content-rich curriculum. And I want to say there are other things. There is no one thing that will fix education. Okay, can you say that one more time? There because, is no. Because <laughs> I, was, I was all good, and then I was like, well, wait a minute, right? No, I and, mean, but, what, but this is what people want, right? People want to read this book and how to fix it, right? People want to read this book. If I just do this one thing that I... Then it'll move, and, yeah. and no, and that hasn't ever worked. And um, but I will say there are other things that we need to do, other than the ones that you were even talking about. I mean, you know, we have to make sure kids have enough to eat and That's they have right. a stable place to live, and all of those That's things. Right. But I will say that if we don't address this curriculum issue, none of those other things are going to move the needle when it comes to breaking the cycle of multi generational poverty. We have to focus on this. And yes, you're right. Um, it, it's complicated. It's complicated to bring teachers along to get that message communicated clearly and effectively. I will say, um, and, and I haven't spent a lot of time there, but there, the state of Louisiana has been studied and, and, and looked at as possibly a model for getting teachers on board. Um, you know, really, I mean, at the state level, it's not just the district level. And... Um, you know, as I said, I, I haven't done a close study of it, but I've been down there a couple of times, talked to teachers down there and talked to administrators down there and read a lot about it. And I think, you know, it has to do with um, engaging teachers 
in the work of, um, in, in the case of Louisiana, they're, one of the things they, they bring te their teacher leaders in to do is to rate different curricula that are out there, elementary literacy curricula and other curricula, and training them to, to understand, well, what makes one curriculum better than another? And, I, and, and those teachers go back to their districts, to their schools, and spread the word, and it's, it becomes less of a top-down thing, sure. which teachers are often resistant to because there are so many initiatives, especially in urban schools, that are sort of, you know, here, now we're doing this, and now we're doing this, and teachers develop a kind of resistance Absolutely. to anything new. Absolutely. But if they hear it coming from a colleague rather than an administrator, they may be more receptive to yeah. that message. And it seems to be working in Louisiana. Yeah. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. We but. found the exact same thing in D.C. When we, you know, I think the first thing that people want to do is buy a content-rich curriculum, which you can do and is absolutely fine. Um, but we felt like, you know, our teachers wanted to be involved in the creation of content-rich curriculum. They wanted it to reflect both what was conventional wisdom about what kids needed to learn and also some of the intricacies of our particular context here in D.C. And so we paid teachers over the summer to develop this curriculum. And they went out and they did the trainings with their colleagues. And so we saw a tremendous uptake um, and then got into a sort of uh, philosophical battle uh, with some of our union colleagues around the who gets to decide question, right? And we think we're going out of our way to partner with teachers, right? And I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned is whatever you do in a school district, it has to be co-created. No one set of folks, administrators, educators, parents, nobody has all of the answers, but when you partner, when parents and, and, and teachers partner or when the district partners with parents or whatever, you get to better results. And so, you know, we got into this whole thing around whether teachers should design their own curriculum, whether this curriculum should be mandatory, you know. And, and part of the challenge was that, you know, we wanted to support teachers, and you can't support teachers when there are 900 different curricula. And so our teachers worked with us to kind of say, these are the two or three, and here's how we want to kind of do this for ourselves. Um, but politics then gets in the way, right? I'm just, mm -hmm. I want our listeners to kind of understand that each one of these thi it, things is an issue in and of itself, and these issues kind of pile on top of each other. So you talk a little bit about the politics of this in your book. Tell me a little bit about how politics affects this work. Well, I think, um, you know, there's a long history of politics interfering with the effort to get content into the into the classroom, the elementary classroom. And it's come both from the left and the right. Mm -hmm. um, I say maybe, you know, more from, from the right historically. Um, so that has led to a, a lack of specificity. Certainly um, at the national level, um, we have the Common Core standards, which a lot of which, which are you know, voluntary. States can choose whether or not to adopt them, and and um, forty six states at one point had adopted them. Some of them now have something called something else, but they're very similar. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people think that that is a curriculum that those the standards are a curriculum, um, and that they have content. And that's a, I think some of the opposition is premised on that. But 
They don't. They really, I mean, they mention a few foundational texts in American history that high school students should read, but there is, in the literacy standards, no specification of content. There's, they really read like a list of skills. Now, tucked into the supplementary materials to the standards is our few statements saying, if you want students to be able to meet these standards, you actually have to build their knowledge through a coherent, content-focused curriculum that exposes them to topics in history and science. And many people are not aware of that language being there, mm-hmm. and uh, even those that are may have difficulty sort of responding to it because they may be caught in a system that is not set up to respond to it. But we got that set of standards um, that lacks content because of previous battles, which I talk about in the book, um, over content, some of which were just, you know, we got to be like a circus, media circus kind of about the national history standards, for example, in the 1990s. And so everybody's kind of shied away from specifying content. But if you don't specify content, you get this real vagueness and you get this focus on skills because people look at these standards and think, well, that's all I need to do. Um, I do think that there are ways to avoid these political battles. I mean, you know, there are an increasing number of districts and classrooms throughout the country that are adopting newly, fairly newly developed content-rich curricula. There are six or seven of them out there now. Some of them have a more social justice orientation. Some of them have a more sort of, you know, Western culture orientation. Um, You know, I haven't heard about a lot of political battles over these elementary curricula. So I think it's to some extent a red herring. And actually, the, the controversies I have heard about have been raised about novels, you know, that that are already being taught in a lot of elementary schools and may touch on some themes that some parents aren't wild about. But I think the bottom line here is we cannot let our fear of political battles prevent us from giving the kids who need access to knowledge the most, can, they can, cannot prevent us from giving kids that access. I agree with you wholeheartedly, as you can imagine. But this goes back to the who gets to decide question, right? When a particular set of parents have a perspective that they don't actually want their kids exposed to other thought um, and or, you know, in a particular state, there's a political bend or what have you. And like, I think the who gets to decide question is the thing that makes the politics a little crazy, right? Well, I would also return to what I said earlier, though we do decide at the high school level. So why can't we decide at the elementary school level? And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that there should be one list of topics that for everybody in this country, I think that's not only politically untenable, it's unrealistic. But, you know, so Louisiana has also developed its own curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, the, one reason they did that was they looked at the curricula that were being developed and they thought, you know, culturally that's just not where most people in Louisiana are going right. to be. That's right. So that's, that's fine. Um, you know, you, you can have different varieties, different curricula for different localities, even different schools to some extent, as long as the focus is on some kind of content. And I think there also probably needs to be a core of content that equips kids to understand the history of this particular country and the particular society that they're living in. 
So this is one of the things that complicated the Common Core, right? Our ability to agree, to come to some agreement on something, right? And most other countries in the world that have seen radical transformations in education, it has been a very sort of top-down nationalistic approach, right, from the federal government or whatever, the federal ministry of education. And we have 50 states that, because of federalism, get to decide how they want to do And 14,000 school districts. And and (laughs) 14,000 school districts. Um, You illuminate a character in the book, not a character, but a person, um, who many people, whom average parents might not have ever heard his name, but he played a huge role as far as the Common Core standards are concerned, and he's now playing a huge role in terms of the SAT, which many parents rely on for college admissions, David Coleman. Do you want to talk a little bit about David's role? And Well, um, yes, I, and I, I am very grateful to, to David for making time for me to go and interview him and get his perspective on uh, really, I think, a very important history um, that isn't well known of how the Common Core standards came about. Um, David, I, I mean, he he was uh, motivated to to get interested in education because of his experience as an undergraduate at Yale, tutoring some kids, high school students who were at a high school not far from the Yale campus, but they came from a high poverty community that you know, they hadn't provided them, and the schools hadn't provided them with the background knowledge they needed to to grapple with complex text. Um, but one experience that David told me about that, that he found really uh, meaningful and profound was he gave these kids um, the Langston Hughes poem about a raisin in the sun. And he said, you know, he wanted to ask them a question that would put them on an equal footing with him, despite the fact that he had a lot more knowledge of the world. And he said, so why do you think he chose a raisin rather than something else, um, a plum? And one of the kids said, well, when a plum dries up, there's still a seed there. So there's like hope. And when a raisin dries up, there's nothing. And I think David was really struck by that. And, and also, you know, this combined with some other experiences, he wanted, through the Common Core, to bring that kind of experience uh, to many, many kids. And he also recognized that they did need to, um, to build their knowledge. They needed access to knowledge. But because of that orientation, he, he put a lot of emphasis on close reading of complex text. And he felt that was also a way to build knowledge um, and that it, it kind of leveled the playing field between teacher and student because, you know, if you... you Students could have these perceptions if they really focused on the text. And he was frustrated by um, the widespread sort of disregard for the text itself, for these skills, for text-to-self connections with kids talking about their personal experiences rather than what they were actually supposed to be learning. Um, He did also talk about building knowledge. And as I mentioned, there is uh, language in the supplementary materials to the standards about building knowledge. But frankly, that language was kind of an afterthought. It's not in the standards themselves. And although David did talk about building knowledge to teachers, the message that came across much more clearly was we need to have kids do close reading of complex text. And, um, you know, through the game of telephone that, that the education system often seems to be, that sometimes got translated into just put complex text in front of kids 
teach them about nonfiction text features like captions and glossaries, and that will help them understand whatever nonfiction text you put in front of them, even if they lack the background knowledge to understand it. And so um, that is certainly not what David Coleman or any of the authors of the Common Core Literacy Standards intended. But um, unfortunately, in a lot of places, that is what it has led to. I would say, on the other hand, there are quite a few places, and and maybe their number is growing, where people did get the message that you need to build knowledge in order to equip kids to meet those Common Core standards. And um, Louisiana is among them, Baltimore, Detroit. These are places that, spurred largely by the Common Core standards, are adopting content-focused, knowledge-rich curricula beginning in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you note in your epilogue is that nobody really has results to show for this work yet. Um, why do you think that is? What's standing in the way? Well, there are some results. I mean, there's a curriculum called Bookworms, for example, that it, which is, is focused largely on having teachers read aloud complex texts to kids and then having kids sort of follow along and do choral reading. And that can be very powerful. And um, so one study found that even after only one year of implementing that particular curriculum, uh, children did better than those in a comparison school on a test of comprehension. But to do a really, um, you know, ideally you would like a randomized controlled trial, you know, the sort of gold standard where you had some kids who were in a knowledge-building curriculum for years and some kids who were in a standard curriculum for years, and then you would test their comprehension at the end of that, and you would see a huge difference. And that's really hard because, for one thing, kids move around a lot in this society, um, especially at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So and there is also something ethically yucky about holding back an intervention that we know works, right, so that we have a control group. Well, right? except that there are so many schools that are doing that, you know, what what we would call the control group. That's sort of the standard approach. And there are a lot of people who really believe that that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know that that would be so much the obstacle. But I know there have been some studies that, that are ongoing, and, and sometimes it's difficult to... Um, you know, there are a lot of variables you can't control yep. over a period of years, and so it does kind of make it a bit messy, a bit noisy. Mm-hmm. But there is the example of France, which I talk about in the book, which um, I owe to E.D. Hirsch, who talks about it in his book, Why Knowledge Matters. Um, and France used to have a very um, a national curriculum. Um, it still does to a large extent, but in 1989, they uh, just for elementary school, they departed from that, and they encouraged elementary schools to adopt a more American approach and different focuses for different schools and, a, and more of a skills focus, developing critical thinking or whatever. And so they, they moved away from that knowledge-building curriculum just at the elementary school level. They they have these preschools that are still doing that and secondary schools. And what happened after that switch in 1989 was the overall level of achievement of students in France fell on international tests, Mm -hmm. and the gap um, between lower income and higher income students widened. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's not definitive, but it's certainly suggestive of the importance of a content-focused elementary curriculum. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge, right, and you raise it in your book, 
uh, is that we have classroom-proof points. Um, sometimes we even have school-proof points. But seeing this proof at scale is, is elusive. Um, what do you expect to see? If your book does everything that you want it to do and has people thinking very differently about this, what kind of results would you expect to see in the coming years? Well, um, I would hope there would be more states following the, the lead of Louisiana and, um, you know, not necessarily mandating content-focused curriculum, but educating educators about the importance, about the different ones that are out there, uh, allowing them some freedom of of choice, but also um, enabling them to make good choices with the support they need to do that. And I really think, I think the key for a lot of this is for teachers to see that this works, to see this approach in action. The way I did when I was in this second grade classroom for a year of kids who were half of them from non-English speaking families, all of them children of color, none of them from educated families. They had been using this particular curriculum, this happened to be core knowledge language arts since kindergarten. And the discussions that they were having in that classroom about, you know, battle strategy at the Battle of Thermopylae or, you know, all sorts of things and their their level of engagement and the vocabulary that they were using, you know, revenge, opponent, um, in their conversation, I think if teachers see that, then they will be inspired to try to replicate that in their own classroom. So I think it's important to start with particular schools where there's a level of enthusiasm for this kind of change. Let them do it, experiment, get it right, and then let other teachers come and see what it looks like in action. So you talked a little bit about wanting teachers to see that this works as a way to help get them engaged in in, um, focusing on uh, uh, eliminating the knowledge gap through a content-rich curriculum. What role do our union partners have to play in helping teachers to see this? Well, I think that teachers genuinely want their students to succeed, and um, I think that it's a matter largely of education, educating the educators, because this is not something they've necessarily been exposed to during their training or on the job. Um, And, you know, I I think that uh, I know that that unions haven't always um, made it easy to engineer reform, but um, I would hope that that there are union leaders and, and members of teachers' unions. I would expect that that if this is presented in a in the in a way that shows them, you know, not only is this going to help your students succeed, but it's actually going to make your job easier. That's right. I would hope they would be on board. Um, and I would say that the um, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, at the at their magazine, at least, called American Educator, has been um, one of the leading publications putting forward this point of view. Um, it goes out to, you know, a million members. It's not clear to me how many of them have been reading it, but but they certainly understand, it in terms of their leadership, yeah. um, that this I mean, is I, important. I think they have an important role to play, right? They advocate for teachers. They, um, in many districts, uh, actually... Um, uh, deliver professional development. And so I think this is an opportunity where the unions can help actually 
folks understand why this is important and can help get teacher buy-in in ways. You know, effectively, I'm trying to draw out that it's going to take all of us, right, from ed schools to unions yes, to districts to states to whoever, if we're going to move forward in this direction on mass to really see some transformation. It is going to take a lot of different people. And I think lots of times we think, well, if the district just, I mean, you pointed out in a number of places where the district might have mandated X, but it still wasn't happening, or, you know, where a state might have required X and it still wasn't happening. It's going to take a lot of different people working on this together. Um, But perhaps the most important constituency to win, um, in part because they spend more time with young people than anybody else and because they are the best advocates for young people, our parents and community members. And so um, what would you say to parents as they think about how to tackle this issue? Well, the first thing I would say is pay attention to what the curriculum looks like at your kid's school and whether it um, it is building their, their knowledge um, and whether it is focused primarily on these illusory skills. And I, I think, uh, you know, I have talked to some parents in the course of researching the book who did that and um, went to the administration of the school and tried to get change to happen and were told, were buffed, um, where they were told, well, that, that wouldn't be developmentally appropriate to have that kind of curriculum or, or whatever. So I think they parents may need to band together. And I don't want this to be an adversarial situation, but I think if um, parents are armed with the knowledge of, of science that supports that what they're advocating for, I would hope that uh, if a group of parents uh, if, if it turns out that a school is resistant to the kind of change they want, that, you know, there may be strength in numbers. Um, and then, you know, there's also choice. Uh, if, if it were clearer which schools out there, either within a traditional public school district or within the charter sector, if it were clearer which schools were using and, and using effectively knowledge-building curricula, then parents could vote with their feet. Natalie, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing uh, this important information with us, uh, the knowledge gap, the hidden cause of America's broken education system and how to fix it. Um, Good luck to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you about it.